Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Before the show, we were talking about coffee, which is something that you thrive on. I like that little IV stand you have with the coffee going into your veins there. Um, (laughs) I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a tea drinker. And we were talking about the relative levels of caffeine in different types of coffee. And you were saying that you thought that which one had more caffeine, dark roasts or light roasts? I think I had heard that light roasts have more caffeine because – the longer you roasted the coffee, the more caffeine was basically roasted out of it. Right. So that a darker roast would be uh, – Depleted. Depleted, yeah. Depleted. So a darker roast might taste stronger but not actually be stronger in terms of caffeine. Right. Now, this was a preconception because we looked it up and we found that if you do it by volume, the darker roast is going to weigh less because there's more water taken out of it. But if you do it by weight, you'll have more of the dark roast beans to equal the lighter roast beans, and they'll have the equivalent amount of caffeine or something like that. But this is one of these preconceptions of things that you just believe is true until you Google it and you find out that you've been totally wrong. So a couple (laughs) of weeks ago, we decided that we wanted to talk about photographic preconceptions, the kind of ideas that photographers have that are, I don't want to say wrong because it's not about right and wrong. Misguided is a good word. Yeah, I think so. I think of it more as the things that you just take as true because you've heard it repeated a lot. A great example, and we have an episode all about this, is the whole rule of thirds. You have to do everything in the rule of thirds. Sorry, the rule of? Sorry, the rule of turds. The rule of turds, yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That that when you're doing composition, man, everything better line up on those those grid lines. Otherwise, your photo isn't good for some reason. And of course, that's that's hockey. And it's just doesn't matter. Yes, you can use it as a guide and you know, encourage you to go listen to that episode uh, because it, it was a really good one. But there are a whole bunch of other things where you just take it on faith. Well, you know, this this photographer who's been shooting for years, he said this and therefore that must be true. Is it? Sometimes it is. But we just accept these without really considering them. And all of these so-called rules, if you really analyze them, they'll make you think about what you do in photography and they'll make you question the – sort of the habits you have and maybe inspire you to do something a little bit differently. Exactly. I mean, that's how you come up with your own style. Maybe you break a rule because you don't want everything to look like everybody else's picture. And there are a few things here that we were talking about that I would say are inviolable rules by some photographers. Like you should never, ever do this. And yet uh, there are plenty of reasons to do it. Okay, I want to start with the one that you hear all the time. Real photographers only shoot in manual mode. Oh, sigh. Totally true. Totally true. Oh, wait. (laughs) Because real photographers have so much time 
to sit around and adjust everything just right. And because they have multi-thousand dollar cameras, which have all these features in that they want to turn off. They don't want to use the autofocus or anything like that. What would, how would you, why would you even want to use an auto exposure setting in a camera? It makes no sense. Real photographers only do manual. I love this idea of real photographers. We should just like, like just shoot that down right off the bat. Yeah, what's like, a real photographer? Hey, if somebody says real photographers only, you just like walk away. Um, and I say this because I'm actually a little bit guilty of of this because I've been shooting in, I would say, mostly manual for a long time. And by that, I mean I don't use manual focus, but I will typically set up a manual shutter speed, manual aperture, manual ISO. But – a lot of that just comes from knowing what those things do and how they interact. I think some of, of where this idea comes from is photographers for whom they were shooting on cameras that did not have a lot of this technology and therefore they got very good at it. I mean put yeah. me up against you know a, a, a seasoned – a photojournalist who was shooting film before manual focus systems came into being, right? Uh, yeah, they're going to do a much better job of focusing than I am because I just don't have those muscles. But I don't need those muscles for autofocus. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the question is, uh, what you said is you're talking about photographers. This this meme, this idea started back before all these things were automatic. I don't remember when the first exposure meter came into cameras. It wasn't that early. And as cameras got easier, it was the real photographers who'd been shooting pictures for a longer time, right? And mm -hmm. that's why this developed into the idea of real photographers only shooting manual. It's wrong. I mean, we'll put a link in the show notes to my... Uh, to the episode about my portrait session with Martin Parr, he always shoots an automatic. He's like, I don't want to waste my time. And it makes yeah. total sense for the kind of photography he's doing. Now, it's very different if you're doing complex landscape photography and you have time and a tripod and filters. And there's all sorts of cases where manual's better, but it's not always better. Automatic's not always better. So, Yeah. Well, and one thing I would add to this is I think this still persists uh, – I think a lot of people have gotten accepting of the idea of having an auto shutter speed or an auto aperture, but there's still this idea that that you should always have a really low ISO setting because of the noise that it can introduce into your images. And like that's still mostly kind of true, except that that's really only happening in a detrimental way at really high ISOs now. And so cameras like the sensors and the processing has just gotten better enough that you can shoot at ISO 800, ISO 1600 and not really have much concern about it because either the camera will do just fine or you can fix it in software later. I've shot at 6400 in my Leica Q2 monochrome without much difficulty. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a little bit different with the monochrome camera. There's less noise probably because of the sensor. Um, sure. And I think I can go up to 12,800 or maybe even higher. So uh, that's, you know, one of, that's one of those things that is 
I remember back in the day shooting Tri-X Pan that was 400 ASA, which is what they called it before ISO, American Standards mm-hmm. Association instead of International Standards Organization. That's what the abbreviation stand for. And I remember once shooting a roll pushed to 1600, which means you set the ASA on the camera to 1600. So the light meter is interpreting it like 1600. Then when you send it for processing, you tell the processor that you shot it at 1600. So they, I think they just develop it for longer. And that does add more noise, but it's a really interesting kind of noise back then. But now, you know, as 1600 is like it's table stakes for cameras today. The point is, if you need more light and you don't have actual light, increasing your ISO is a perfectly acceptable way to get that. And that's fine. So then we can move on to the next one, which is going to be my next one, which is another preconception that hits me a lot. Never blow out your highlights. So for shame. when you expose, when you expose for an image, you should always underexpose enough so that none of your image blows out to just pure white pixels. And there's a good reason for that because when you're editing, you can't get any more image data out of those pixels. A white pixel is always going to be a white pixel. And if you try to bring down exposure, it's going to turn into a gray pixel. And oftentimes that's not what you want. And so uh, we've talked about this in recent episodes. We were looking at uh, like some pictures of clouds that you had shot that you had underexposed because clouds can notoriously blow out to white. And so that can lead you to underexposing everything. Well, you don't need to do that. And there are many, many times when it's okay to let those highlights go just blasted out. I mean, specifically, I'm thinking like uh, in in portrait scenes where you have like a bright window. If you have a subject that you're focusing on and they have good light on them, nobody's going to care that they can't see the detail of what's out the window because that becomes a distraction. So don't feel like oh, I need to really do all sorts of other things to compensate for the fact that this window is really bright when that can give you the texture of the image. I mean, that can be the character of your image, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, You have to take into account the entirety of the image and not just lock your eyes on the histogram and say, oh my God, I can't shoot it like that. Of course, if you have a sensitive enough camera, you can underexpose and then raise the light on everything to get that blown out highlight. So you are more flexible. Actually, that's it. The flexibility. Don't be inflexible because somebody said, oh, you should never blow out your highlights. Maybe someone even on this podcast who sounds a lot (laughs) like me has most definitely said that. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about sharpness now, and I particularly like the uh, statement by um, Henri Cartier-Bresson where he said sharpness is a bourgeois concept. (laughs) And obviously we would never say that in in the United States, a bourgeois concept, but the idea is like it's – That's because we can't pronounce it right. (laughs) Well, you can't pronounce it, but the idea of that is like 
I don't know, an academic painting on the wall at, you know, when the Impressionists were causing revolutions in painting. I'd say a bourgeois concept is something that's fixed and all that. And while you were talking just before I was looking up, Joel Myrowitz has a number of really lovely photos that are blurry. Girl on a Scooter in 1965 is, he's got this girl who stopped in the middle of a street in New York City and she's doing something to her nails and she's blurry and that's life. It's not sharp. Um, There's a a famous photo of a portrait of a woman standing next to a tree at a party in Cape Cod from his book Cape Light. And what's wonderful is he must have shot it at a slow enough shutter speed so that some of the people are blurry because they're moving, but the subject is nice and sharp. And it, that's a creative effect if it was intentionally done like that. He was using an 8x10 view camera, so it's very possible that, that he had planned that. But the the idea of sharpness, your images have to be sharp. It's like, you know, when I edit photos, I never touch the sharpness slider. When I see people talking about photos in forums, it's, oh, how much sharpness did you apply? It's like, you're looking at the photo. Does it need to look artificially sharp? Is there some reason why... The photo is bad because of something, right? Mm-hmm. So here's the thing about sharpness for me because our cameras can do a very good job of making things sharp. And whenever we're talking about lenses, we want to know, is it sharp? Is it sharp in the middle? Is it sharp in the corners? I mean, these these are really good ways to evaluate things like lenses. And what comes across to me is just that importance of, okay, well, things should be sharp. And forget that having things that are sharp, that's just another way of of making something more prominent. So maybe you don't want your entire image to be sharp because you want to isolate a subject. So maybe you have like a, a blurrier background or whatever. Or maybe you have, you know, motion. Motion uh, can be blurry and, and, and that indicates that. But what I'm leading up to here is something that I have difficulty with, which is being able to look at a blurry photo that I took and say, is this a good photo even though it's blurry? Is it a good photo because it's blurry? Or is it really not a good photo because it's just a blurry photo? I don't know how to tell when something is just – it's just blurry or it's artistically blurry, right? Right. So you can have the artistic blur. Let's say you're intentionally shooting a slow shutter speed and you want to get moving. And you had a photo recently. Was it of the Lincoln Memorial where yeah. you did it long enough that you see the ghosts of the people as they're moving around? But uh, you must have shot on a tripod. So the big statue of Abe Lincoln is is sharp, but everyone around it is blurry. And that's an effect, Right. That mm-hmm. that's that's intentional. That's not accidental. Yeah. That sort of yeah. thing. Um, I think sharpness is a crutch for a lot of photographers because maybe if their photos aren't that good, they can at least say, Wow, look how sharp it is. Um right. I, I, I don't wanna I mean, none of us are professional photographers here. Well, you do some professional photography work. Uh, yeah. in recent weeks I, I'm in a number of Facebook photography groups for different cameras and different styles of photography. And I've been stunned about how many bad photos there are. I mean, just plain objectively bad, right? Like, oh, here's my street photo session of today. And there's six photos of people walking. It's like, just because you got a photo of someone walking doesn't make it a good photo. It's sharp, (laughs) right? He's in focus. It's But it's like, and, and I think people who don't have the concept of 
composition and telling stories with photos, use that as a crutch. And, and I'm not criticizing anyone because you do what you want with your photography. And if it makes you happy to have photos of people walking down the street doing nothing or talking on their phone, that's the big one. Um, but it it's one element in the toolbox of a thousand elements in photography. And you shouldn't put too much attention on sharpness or anything else. Yeah. So when I was in Florence, I spent some time just shooting on the street, trying to do this whole idea of I'm going to just see what I can see and just just practice really. And there were a bunch of bicyclists who would come through this square. And so I tried to take some some you know handheld moving pictures. So you move the camera along with the bicycle and hopefully the bicycle gets in focus and everything else is blurred. I don't think any of my experiments were actually really good, but I'll put a couple pictures in the show notes so we can see It's not like, an easy technique. It's not an easy technique. And and actually, so part of what, what brought this up is that I'm wondering, are these just blurry pictures? That They weren't really successful in the sense of that specific technique where the subject is in focus and everything's blurred because that's – I mean that's just a hard thing to do. So, so my gut feeling is these probably aren't quote-unquote good pictures. These are good exercises. But I don't really know. So – I'm with you. They're not good pictures. However, the one of the woman, I think, is a good picture. The one of the guy looking at his phone, well, he's cut off on the bottom. And yes, you don't have to – it's okay to cut off people's feet, but it looks a little bit mm -hmm. weird. Um, the other one looking from behind, you don't really see what that person's doing. So it doesn't really yeah. have any story. But the the one of the woman with the big bag on her back, it, it the way the – the way the highlights are blown out in the background um, to make the whole thing overexposed gives it a real feeling of speed, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that this particular image says a lot, but if you had something like this with something more interesting going on, I think it could be interesting. I yeah. said interesting too yeah. many times. Um, but <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't come out from the background well enough. Mm -hmm. So you can't really see much. But these are the kinds of – I mean these are the kinds of photos that people post to street photography because I got pictures of people on a bicycle. Oh, here's someone walking in front of an interesting wall. My god, what a terrible cliche that is. <laughs> OK. What do you have next that we should never, ever, ever do or that we should always, always, always do? So here's the thing. You should always use a prime lens. Zoom lens are the devil. The devil's advocate. No, sorry. The devil's <laughs> the, the devil. The devil's spawn. The devil's spawn. Yes, uh, because zoom lenses, they're not. Well, they're not prime. They're not pure. Well, they're not as they're sharp. They're not. They're not. Sometimes they're not as sharp. They're bigger. They're heavier. And you know what? What this boils down to is, you're cheating. You're cheating by having a zoom lens because you did not want to get close enough to your subject. Yeah. There, I've said my piece. I guess we're done now. <laughs> now. This used to be me because I started photography with a 50 millimeter lens like everyone. And mm -hmm. I realized a few years ago, probably since we've been doing this podcast, that there are some really good zoom lenses and it's a lot easier than carrying four lenses and changing them. 
question of practicality mostly. And I'm not obsessed by f1.8 lenses. I have actually mostly used a zoom uh, for my for my photography of of one type or another. Some of that is just because uh, if you want to get a really good prime lens, it's going to cost you a fair bit of money. But also, it's it's that flexibility. And the thing is, I mean, I'm going to sort of toot my own horn here. I've I've written books, I've done articles, and a lot of images that I've shared that have been you know quote unquote good images. A lot of them have been shot with. I have a trusty eighteen to one thirty five. Uh, I think it's an f f two point eight maybe or f three point six at the widest. So you know, it's it's not a very quote unquote fast lens. And just but, to translate, that's about a twenty eight to two hundred in normal thirty right. five millimeter equivalent. Because we're talking about yeah. Fujifilm here. Yeah, yeah, because I'm shooting on a crop sensor. Are my photos not as good because they're not prime? No. If I had a better prime lens, could some of those photos, like you know, taken from the same spot, be better? Yeah, maybe. But the whole point is this idea that that you have to you have to meet this certain level to be a quote unquote photographer. Well, if you're not shooting with prime lenses, then you must not be a serious photographer. And it's all bull. It's, it's just – what? It's all bull. 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 Okay. Can we – It's another word. Are we going to swear on our podcast? <laughs> well, is that technically a swear word? I don't think so. Uh, no. this, is, this is another one of these elitist things, right? Um, yeah. So if you can afford all the prime lenses, and I must say I have several Fujifilm prime lenses – if you can afford them all, you're a better photographer because you got more stuff in your bag. I would rather now not have a photo bag, just carry one camera, though I've got two very different cameras, the, the Leica Q2 monochrome, which is a fixed lens, so that's a prime. And, yep. and that's a totally different story, stuck with a fixed lens camera where you can't change the lens. But between that and my Fujifilm with the 16 to 80 zoom lens, so that's 24 to 120. So it's intermediate. It's not as long as yours, but it's not as big and heavy. That to me is all I need. I don't want to have to switch lenses when I'm – I want to take a picture someplace. Wait a second. Let me open my camera bag and find my 27 millimeter and switch the lens and make sure – take the lens cap off. And it's like <laughs> – it's just easier. Now, to, to be fair, I think zoom lenses have gotten a lot better in I want to say the past 10 years, maybe more. Yeah. My uh, 16 to 80 is a F4 constant. So that means the aperture is the same at the short end and at the long end, which is it's, – it's a more expensive lens. But Fujifilm's yeah. basic kit lens, the 18 to 55, so that's what, 18, 26 to 80-ish, is a wonderful lens even though it's not a fixed um, aperture. I think it's 2.8 to 5.4, something like that. Yeah. But – it's just a question of – I'm reminded of that photo of all the gear you took on your European trip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to post it again. Okay. You can go back to to any of our show notes and you'll probably and, find and it. And <laughs> imagine if you just took two zoom lenses with your camera, right, instead of you know like a, a shorter zoom and a longer zoom or even just one zoom and you figure – if I don't get the photo, I don't get the photo. So yeah, prime lenses are great. And I think prime lenses are a great way to learn how to photograph because you're limited. We've talked about this, the constraints in photography and the constraints mm -hmm. of prime lenses. But in real life, 
uh, it's a lot better to have the options. Now, prime lenses are smaller and lighter. And again, we're Fujifilm people. So they've got this wonderful 27 millimeter pancake, which if you want a really discreet camera, you put that on the, what is it? The XC4. And it's kind of like the size of your X100V. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a pocketable camera. It's a big difference than the zoom lens. So there are reasons for one or the other. I would say that street photography with a zoom lens looks a bit creepy because most people, when they see a zoom lens, they think it's going to be like a strong telephoto. And mm-hmm. with a smaller prime lens, you're going to stand out a little bit less. But I mean, it just depends, right? I think the key here is you should not accept as a hard and fast rule that you will only get good pictures with a prime lens. And I think that's how this translates sometimes. You can get very good pictures with any lens. What's great about different lenses is not just the the focal length and and you know how much you can see from the lens of your scene and all that, but lenses have character and you will find yourself gravitating to other lenses because you like the way your pictures are coming out of those lenses rather than just saying, well, I'm I'm doing some street photography now, so I need to put on my 50 millimeter. Well, you know, maybe you don't. But but maybe that 50 millimeter is a lens that you love and you enjoy shooting with. So, you know, don't limit yourself just because somebody says you only need a prime lens. That doesn't mean you're going to get better pictures just because it's prime. And I'm going to riff on that. And I'm going to say that fast lenses aren't necessarily better than slower lenses. And by fast, we're talking about the maximum aperture. So I think the fastest I've got is a one my 1.7 on the Leica. And I've got F the, the 35 millimeter F1.4 that I have with the Fuji. So 50 millimeter equivalent. Um, you say that lenses have character, and this particular Fujifilm lens is known to have a lot of character for portraits and stuff like that. But fast lenses aren't necessarily better. They, are, they can generally be bigger and heavier and much more expensive. And mm-hmm. since we have the opportunity to boost ISO now, which we discussed in a previous preconception, you don't really need faster lenses to get low light photos anymore, at least not as much as you used to. There is a – I'll put a link in the show notes to – um, this is Park Cameras who made a video called The Beauty of F4 Lenses and talking about the fact that you don't need the expensive ones. The, these cheaper ones are just as good. You can do just as much. And yes, you won't get that background blur, which is oh, so buttery smooth and everything. And that's I'm not going to even go into that one today. We did a whole episode on that. Yeah, yeah. But you might be better off with a lens that is more forgiving. Because one of the problems of shooting at wide open apertures is your focal plane isn't very deep and you've got to be, you know, spot on and, well, then you lose sharpness if someone's blurry. But actually, mm-hmm. the kind of blur that you get from someone out of focus is different than the kind of blur you get when someone's moving, right? Yeah. Um, so the out of focus looks sloppy, whereas the movement looks okay, if that makes sense. Although even sometimes out of focus is okay. You look at Robert Kappa's photos of, you know, D-Day and Normandy and stuff, and you don't care that they're out of focus because they're representing an event. So F4 lenses, like my Fujifilm 16 to 80 millimeter zoom, which is an F4, are certainly acceptable. Yeah. And also, here's a little secret that I think gets past a whole lot of the the sales and marketing and reviews and all of that. Uh, yes, it's great having an f one point two lens. 
I have a uh, a Viltrox 52 I, – I always forget. It's either 56 or 52 millimeter uh, that, that goes to – actually, mine's a 1.4. OK. So you can get F1.2. You can get F1.0 You can get lenses. F0.95 I think on Leica. I think there's a Leica 0. There Somebody several, has one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going to pay a lot of money for it, and you're going to catch a whole lot of light, and you're going to have really, really soft backgrounds. And the secret is how often are you going to shoot like that? Maybe maybe that is your specialty. There, there are some portrait photographers where like that's the look, right? But you're going to be shooting throughout the whole range. The kind of portrait photographers where the eyes are in focus but the ears and the nose aren't. Right, where the focal exactly. plane is really just where the eyes are. Yeah, and you know, for them that works. But most of the time, you're going to be shooting f two, f four, you know, f five point six, f eight, depending on like you have a whole range. So maybe you don't need to spend an extra, I mean, four hundred, five hundred dollars for that that extreme softness, that extreme wide openness when mostly you're going to be shooting at, you know, F1.8. F1.8 was like really wide open for a lot of people at an inexpensive price point. My first prime lens was an, you know, 50 millimeter F1.8 and I thought that was amazing and it is. It just depends on on what you need it for. So here's a tip. If you really like that, let's say you're doing portraits and you like that look of the faces in focus, but the background's blurry, Mm -hmm. you can do it in software. You can select the background of the person. You can blur it a little bit. You can even do a radial blur. You can do all sorts of blurs. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's one of the things that these days we have so much power in software that can replace some of these tools that we've been using. Yeah. Why, why except for the special case that you talked about, or let's say you're a macro photographer, product photographer, and you need a particular look, why bother? But then again, you know, people will buy what they buy. And I think if not for amateur photographers buying gear that they never use – the photo industry would collapse. <laughs> yeah, this is very true. This is very true. <laughs> well, I think leading out from this, I think part of what we're we're knocking out with these preconceptions, there's also some truth to all of these things that we've mentioned. And the key is not to just adhere to something because you heard it or because a famous photographer told you this, but use these as creative options. And figure out what works for you. Okay. Why don't we move on to our snapshots? Okay. My snapshot fits in with this whole theme a little bit. And one of the things we didn't talk about was the iPhone and how the iPhone is not a, quote, real camera. That's another thing we we have talked about uh, over and over and over and over and over. And, of course, the answer is, yes, it is a real camera. So my snapshot is a video by Tyler Stallman who is a professional photographer and uh, YouTuber. And he did this video, when an iPhone camera is better than a full frame camera. And there are lots of these things on YouTube that's, you know, we're going to pit an iPhone against a, you know, $12,000 
uh, red cinema camera, whatever, whatever. But what I liked about his approach is he really looked at the strengths and weaknesses of using an iPhone and particularly from his perspective, using it in a professional capacity. And there are some places where, yes, a full-frame camera is going to give you lots of advantages. But there are also areas like, like for example, this doesn't really apply to us, but the image stabilization shooting video on an iPhone is better than just about everything that's out there, even you know, big gimbals and, and all of that. It's just really, really good. And so maybe if that's what you need, the iPhone is the better tool. So it's a really good comparison of things that that we used to think, oh, well, obviously a real camera, and I you know put that in quotes because I can't even say that anymore, is going to beat an <laughs> iPhone every time. And it's not the case and it depends on the situation and all of that. All right, Kirk, what do you have this week? I have a book that is quite apropos for this subject. It is called Photo No-No's. It's published by Aperture. Uh, came out last year sometime. Basically, Aperture contacted, I think, hundreds of photographers and said, what are the things you absolutely will not ever shoot? And oh. they all came up with lists. And then Aperture asked a number of them, write about this, write about that. And they're things like, I'm just leafing through at random. In F, fake scenes. Here's one who says, um, I've taken many jobs with fashion magazines, shooting models and subjects in forced and unnatural postures. They haven't come out well. And it has drained my inspiration and creativity. I don't like to fake a scene. And here's one saying, fashion, I don't do fashion. Fear, I don't want photos of fear. Feathers and sticks. Let me say I am not a hippie, but I have been collecting <laughs> sticks and feathers for the last five years. I make little arrangements around the house and studio and secretly photograph them. And I would never show these photographers as my art. That's interesting. Some of the photographers here talk about things that they do shoot, but don't show people and others are things. Uh, I'm just not doing this because forever. Here's one says, I don't do feet. I don't do firearms. Um, I don't use a flash. Can't use a flash. I've never, I've never turned to the flash for professional work, says Hannah Price. Well, one day Hannah will probably use a flash. Luke Sante, food, doesn't want to shoot food photos. This is, it's a mixed bag of things in this book. Some of them are actually interesting and some of them feel like throwaways. And it does have a number of photos um, in color on glossy paper at a couple of points in the book of showing the kinds of things that the people were talking about, either I do or don't shoot, like the person who doesn't shoot cats and there's a cat photo and that sort of thing. So Photo No-Nos, edited by Jason Fulford, uh, published by Aperture. Okay, so that's enough for this week. If you have any ideas, you can check out in our Facebook group and tell us the kind of things that you absolutely will never do or always do or things that you have always believed that you found out are not true. Sounds great. <laughs> okay, until next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.